This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. So the property world 2021 has continued to be a year of change. We recently recorded a podcast about the continuing restrictions on landlords' remedies, some of the COVID cases we've seen, and what we're expecting from the government during the upcoming months to deal with COVID arrears. But for today's property patter, we want to leave COVID mostly to one side and focus on some other business-as-usual property-related decisions during 2021, which may have slipped under your radars and which should be of interest. I'm joined today by Laura Bushaway and Natalie Duker of our Real Estate Disputes team to talk about those cases and what we may see ahead during the upcoming months. So let's start with forfeiture. Um, Laura, as we know, this remedy has been severely restricted for non-payment of rent uh, in respect of commercial property since March 2020, and that's going to continue until March 2022. Um, But landlords should, of course, keep in mind that the option of forfeiture remains available for breaches other than non-payment of rent in the commercial sphere and, of course, for all breaches in certain residential contexts. Um, This is always a topical issue, not an easy one to navigate, um, especially when it comes to waiver. And I think we've seen a case on that uh, recently, which, uh, as I said, some people may have missed with all that's been going on. Um, So perhaps if you wouldn't mind, uh, could you tell our listeners about that one? Yes, um, Emma, I'm going to start with um, Fires and Burnley Borough Council, um, which is about waiver of the right to forfeit. Um, and I'm just going to briefly mention the facts because it helps explain um, why the Court of Appeal reached their decision that they did. Um, what happened was that the council granted a lease of a cafe for a term expiring in March 2020. Um, That lease was contracted out of the protection of the Landlord and Tenant Act 1954. And at some point before um, the 18th of October 2019, Fires, the tenant, had granted a sublease without the council's consent to another company. And that lease did have the protection of the Landlord and Tenant Act 1954. Now, very briefly, the events that led to the forfeiture of the the lease and and the issue about the waiver were that at the end of September 2019, the council made a demand for insurance rent, and that was uh, due on the 2nd of October. On the 18th of October, the tenant solicitors sent a copy of the sublease to the council. So at that point, the council then had knowledge that there had been subletting which had taken place without their consent. Um, At the end of the October, at the end of October, Uh, the council served a notice um, under section 146 to commence forfeiture um, in relation to the unauthorised subletting. And then on the 4th of November, they sent a demand for insurance rent, which was a revised figure um, now that they discovered that the tenant was in breach of the lease. And the question for the Court of Appeal was whether the demand or acceptance of rent with knowledge of the breach amounted to waiver if the rent fell due after the breach, but before the landlord had had knowledge of it. And also the Court of Appeal had to decide whether the demand for insurance rent at the beginning of November was a new demand for rent made after the landlord had become aware of the breach of the lease. And what the Court of Appeal said was the acceptance of rent and all the demand of rent after a breach of covenant with knowledge of that breach 
waived the right to forfeit, even though the rent in question had accrued due and been demanded before the landlord had had knowledge of the breach. And they also found that the demand for insurance rent was not a new demand and did not waive the right to forfeit. And helpfully, the Court of Appeal gave um, an example in the judgment, which will hopefully explain this principle. And that is, um, imagine the tenant commits a once and for all breach in January. The rent is payable on the usual quarter days, but remains unpaid. The landlord discovers the breach in July, but the tenant hadn't paid the rent in March or June. What the Court of Appeal said is that it, wouldn't, it would be inconsistent for a landlord to rely on a breach in January, and yet with knowledge that a breach had taken place in January, even though they only became aware of it in July, to now accept the rent due in March and June. So in order to give rise to a waiver, the landlord must have knowledge not only that there's been a breach, but also that the rent demanded or accepted fell due after the date of that breach. That makes sense. Um, so what's the best way for landlords and those advising them to proceed given that decision? So the best way forward is when a landlord becomes aware of a breach and the date that the breach occurred, um, then if the breach took place a year before and there are arrears, the landlord cannot accept any sums which had not been paid after the breach occurred even though the date of knowledge may be later. So the safest course of action is to ensure that as soon as the landlord has knowledge of a breach, a stop is placed on the tenant's account and no rent or other sums are demanded or accepted and no other step taken to acknowledge the ongoing um, landlord and tenant relationship for any period to avoid waiver of the right to forfeit. Yeah, and that's sort of the approach we've always taken really, haven't we? Because it's always been a case of you know, why take the risk? You know, if you seriously do want to preserve your right to forfeit, then what, why would you risk it really for the sake of a quarter or two of rent? You know, if it's a serious breach you're concerned about and concerned enough to forfeit, then, you know, you're just going to have to not, I mean, it, it doesn't give you, it, does, it doesn't give up the right for you to pursue those arrears at some point later. But, you know, the point is you're, you're exercising an election really, aren't you, to say that I, I, I probably don't want this lease to continue. Yes, I think that's right. I think previously there was a sort of technical argument that could be uh, run about when the arrears actually accrued. But as you say, I think in most cases, it's just not worth taking the risk. And I think this case has obviously confirmed that, in fact, you cannot now do that because you could uh, inadvertently there waive the right to forfeit. So quite, quite an important one. Yeah, and a good level of authority as well. So um, that's that's helpful. Um and I believe there's been another case on the forfeiture front. They're like buses, these things. Um, Natalie, I think you've got another one for us, haven't you? Uh, I have, yes. The Court of Appeal has been, uh, has been busy at the outset of the year. Um, they've handed down judgment in the case of Kishwala and Sharma against Balsod. Balsod. To understand the case, we just need to look at the facts briefly. Um, the case involved premises comprising a lock-up shop on the ground floor and residential accommodation above. And they were let to the tenants, Kashwala and Sharma, for a period of 20 years, um, from 17th of March 2008. The lease required rent to be paid in advance on the usual quarter days, and it contained a forfeiture clause, which would allow re-entry if any part of the rent should be unpaid for 21 days. Um, on the 13th of September 2018, after the tenants had mistakenly underpaid rent for the June quarter by £500, the landlord forfeited the lease by peaceable re-entry. Now, interestingly, it wasn't the first time that the landlord had forfeited the lease for arrears of rent. 
by taking peaceful re-entry against these tenants. They'd done exactly the same thing in 2015, and on that occasion, the tenants had promptly applied for, for relief from forfeiture, which had been granted on payment of the outstanding rent and, and various costs. Um, shortly after the, the lease had been forfeited, on the 24th of September, the tenants emailed the landlord to let them know that they had paid the outstanding sum and they were ready to pay the September quarter's rent in full. Um, the landlord's agents in October, having been contacted by the tenants several times by email, responded to the effect that the landlord had told them not to take any action as he was dealing with the matter. Um, and that correspondence was copied to a Gmail address for one of the two landlords. The, there was then nothing then happened until late in January when the tenants instructed solicitors. Those solicitors wrote to the landlord to say that there was a delay in issuing an application for relief from forfeiture as a result of one of the two tenants being in India and a delay in getting his signature. But the email was copied to the wrong address for the landlord. The, um, on the 4th of February 2019, the landlords relet the commercial premises and the residential premises separately. On the 13th of February, the landlord sent an email referring to the reletting and indicating that a claim would follow. And then on the 26th of February, which is then five and a half months after the landlords re-entered, the tenants issued an application for relief from forfeiture. Um, to, as a reminder, section 139.2 of the County Courts Act 1984 provides that a tenant can apply for relief from forfeiture for non-payment of rent within six months of peaceable re-entry. So technically, therefore, the application that was made by the tenants was within that time limit. Now, at first instance, the judge who looked at this claim conducted a pretty detailed examination of the facts and dismissed the tenant's claim for relief. Um, she determined that there was no adequate explanation for the delay in issuing the application after 13th of September 2018. The county court judge was unimpressed by the landlord's what she what she referred to as harsh business practice in forfeiting a lease which had 10 years left to run where the arrears were only 500 pounds. The high court disagreed with the county court judge and granted the application for relief on the basis quite simply that the application had been made within six months of re-entry and it then went up to the court of appeal. Now what the court of appeal said is that the court's discretion under section 139.2 was to be exercised, exercised on the ordinary equitable principles. And whilst the tenant had six months to apply, it had to act with due diligence and reasonable promptitude. The Court of Appeal did look at various authorities, but most of those concerned tenants who were seeking relief beyond a period of six months under the court's equitable jurisdiction. But those repeated indications in the authorities said that the tenant who leaves it to the end of that window, or even within the six month window, would not necessarily be taken to have acted promptly, and delay can be a relevant factor. So effectively what we have here in Kishwala and Balshod is the Court of Appeal saying that there is no legal principle that an application for relief from forfeiture made within six months of re-entry will be deemed to have been made reasonably promptly. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it, you, you, as a tenant, if you do want to get back to premises, you, you've got to really 
make that application really quite promptly and certainly be making the right noises about it, haven't you? Because you, you know, I suppose the point the court is making is you can't expect landlords to sit there for six months and not relet their premises with no income stream coming in either. No, I mean, that's absolutely right. And I think one of the criticisms here of the um, of the tenants was the lack of um, the lack of correspondence that effectively was saying, you know, we are now doing this and we are now doing that and we're going to apply for, for relief and forfeiture. Whereas, of course, conversely, the first time this had happened back in 2015, they'd been considerably more prompt about it. And I think, you know, that's something to be borne in mind when acting for tenants. If a lease has been forfeited by peaceable reentry, and you know that the tenant is going to want to make an application for relief, they must act fast. And if there's any reason why they cannot make their application for relief very quickly, then they need to be contacting the landlord and making clear what their intention is and why they can't do it and the reasons for not being able to do it at that time. Yes, and I've had tenants do that to me. I've had tenants who have got in touch to say, look, I don't have the money to do it right now, but I really want to get back to the premises. I mean, it does put a landlord in really quite a difficult position at that point because you can't say you didn't know they wanted to apply. Um, but it's, you know, it's it's a point for tenants, isn't it, really? Because, you know, I guess the, the lesson is making an application for relief within that six-month period where you think, well, I'm within the rules. You know, it's it's not a guarantee, is it? No, I mean, I think what we can take from this is that there is no principle that a tenant will be taken to have acted re with reasonable promptitude just because the application is brought within the six month time limit. Um, and the Court of Appeal have been very clear that they will, the court has a discretion as to whether relief will be granted. And the mere fact of delay by itself is not going to be a sufficient cause for refusing relief where the landlord has taken possession and done nothing with the property. But the longer the delay, the more likely that the court will conclude that the tenant has not acted in a timely manner. Um, and I think, you know, in, in this case, other factors did come into play. So for a start, the court found Mr. Balsod to be, in their own words, a most unimpressive witness who had manipulated the situation to his advantage, but had not done so unlawfully. Even with that in mind, the court found that the you know, the tenants would not succeed on that claim. Very interesting one. Um, and and probably quite useful, I suspect, going forward. Um, we may, of course, eventually um, see a bit more of this. Um, and of course, you know, we have got this rather volatile climate at the moment. Um, I can imagine, and in fact, we've already seen, I think, an increase in disputes about contractual interpretation. Um, what's been happening uh, on that side in the property industry, Laura? Yeah, there's actually been quite a recent uh, Court of Appeal case of Monsular IQ Limited and Wadden Park, um, which concerned the interpretation and effect of rent review provisions in a lease of solar apparatus on agricultural land. Um, the context in which this particular lease came to be drafted is somewhat unusual because at the time that the lease was entered into, the same person controlled the landlord and tenant entity, and therefore there was no process of negotiation leading to the um, final lease, which might explain why something in the drafting has potentially or had potentially gone wrong in this lease. And what had happened was the lease provided for a rent review annually on the anniversary of the commencement date. Nothing strange there. But read literally the provision 
as accepted by both parties, because of course by now the landlord and tenant were completely unconnected. Um, the provision produced a rent which would grow exponentially over time. As in each year, the rent was increased by the cumulative increase or decrease in inflation, not just the previous year's change. So it was estimated that this would be a, a sort of 10% more than the initial rent on the first review day, date, rising to 21% on the second review date and 33.1% on the third re review date. Um, and what this meant, um, I understand, is that an annual rent of 15,000 could, by year 25 of the lease, be £76 million. Pounds. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> Cha-ching! Um, <laughs> um, so, Montsela, the tenant, um, argued that the intention had been for the, ten uh, for the rent to increase or decrease annually, but not cumulatively. And Warden Park, the landlord, argued that there was no obvious mistake in the rent review provisions in the context of the grant of the lease. So the question in this case was whether the result of the rent review formula matched the party's intentions. The Court of Appeal found that it was plain as day that the rent review provisions contained a drafting error and reviewing the results produced by the rent review provision, they were arbitrary and irrational and nonsensical, all words from the Court of Appeals judgment, leading to a conclusion that cannot have been intended. So this was in the Court of Appeals view, very different from a situation where you may, might have imprudent provisions, was again the language used in the judgment, or provisions which are commercially unattractive or unreasonable for one party. So the Court of Appeal in this case upheld the High Court's decision to revise the formula so that the annual, um, sorry, the annual change in the rent would be by reference to the increase or decrease in the RPI index in the previous year, which was actually not the formula proposed by either of the parties. Um, and I think even though this case very much turns on its own facts, it's going to be the sort of situation that I think we're going to see parties taking advice on when this sort of dispute arises. Um, but ideally, I think before parties enter into leases, they should obviously check that the formula doesn't produce, um, you know, these kind of results where one party is then going to be looking to dispute uh, the wording, the drafting. Very interesting, isn't it? Because it's not, you know, it's quite analogous to Arnold and Britain. Um, people may remember the case about the, I think it was sort of static holiday homes or something along those lines where they were going to end up paying service charges of a million pounds or something in so many years. But, um, you know, in that result, the the House of Lords was quite a Supreme Court, sorry, uh, showing my age, um, was quite, uh, you know, was quite emphatic. If that's what the contract said, that's what the contract said. So, um slightly interesting departure from the Court of Appeal there. I mean, obviously, these things always turn on their own facts, don't they, and the circumstances, but um, I can see why the landlord thought they might give it a go. Well, interestingly, there was a bit of discussion in the judgment about whether this case had departed from or altered in any way the Arnold um, and uh, Britain decision. Um, and uh, what the Court of Appeal said was that is unaffected. And I think that what made this case different was because it was looking at what, whether the formula matched the party's intentions. I mean, I think it's quite a nuanced um, kind of decision and it kind of... Um, comes from a different line of authority on mistake um, and a case called Chartbrook. Um, but as a result of all of this, the Court of Appeal said Arnold and Britain is unaffected. And really what 
why they um, looked to construe the provision in the way that they did is because of this nonsensical result that they that they found the rent review provision had caused so I mean it is a fine line as I'm explaining it you know you can hear it's quite difficult to explain it as a concept um, but as you say um, it is certainly an interesting development. Yeah it just shows how tricky it is to predict the law sometimes I think um, and of course another potential impact of COVID is that a lot of landlords and tenants will be reviewing their property portfolios. Tenants in particular will be thinking about their needs for space and flexibility. Um, I, you know, I think that doesn't take a rocket scientist to predict uh, an increase in disputes about break clauses. Um, and I know that the Court of Appeal has recently uh, given us a decision on the operation of, of a break clause, although not in connection with COVID-19 particularly. Um, so that was Global Radio. Um, Natalie, perhaps you tell us a bit more about that one. Yes, well, we're, we're already seeing in practice tenants who have been hit by the pandemic looking to see whether there is any leverage in their leases to exit early and possibly secure smaller, you know, and possibly short term accommodation. Um, and the Court of Appeal has now handed down judgment in the case of Capital Park Leeds um, PLC against Global Radio Services Limited. And that case was a um, concerned of modern three storey commercial premises and the lease which was due to expire in November 2025, had been assigned to Global Radio Services. Global Radio Services exercised a break, which gave them, as the tenant, the option to determine the lease in November 2017. And one of the preconditions to the exercise of the break was that the tenant should give vacant possession to the landlord on the relevant break date. Now, after the notice was served, the parties through their agents did meet on site to discuss dilapidations liability. And as part of the remedial works, the tenants contractors started stripping out the premises. By the break date, some fairly extensive works are being carried out. So Global had actually removed a whole range of items from the property and those included ceiling tiles, floor finishes, pipe work, lighting, all of which were actually part of the original specification for the property. They hadn't actually been installed by the tenant and they were landlord's fixtures. So the landlord's argument was that the tenant hadn't given vacant possession of the premises because the premises in the lease were a defined term and they included the original building and all of the fixtures and fittings wherever fixed. The landlord's case, therefore, was that in removing elements of the building, the tenant had failed to give back the premises. And at first instance, the court agreed with the landlord and, and the court held that the lease had not been determined and that therefore the tenant was stuck with the lease until 2025, because that was the second of two break clauses um, that could have been exercised by the tenant during the contractual term. The case then went to the Court of Appeal. And they said that what the break clause was concerned with is whether the landlord is recovering the premises free from people, chattels and interests. The Court of Appeal um, considered the break clause and other clauses where tenants were required to have performed and observe covenants. And they contrasted that with the break clause and the yield up clause of this lease. Now, the yield up clause did require the premises to be handed back in a state of repair and condition and decoration consistent with the prior performance of the tenant's covenants. Um, and so what they what they found is that the break clause effectively required the tenant to give back the premises with vacant possession and that the landlord therefore would still have a claim and damages against the tenant 
for a breach of any other obligations, but that having handed back the property free from people, chattels and interest, the tenant had validly determined the lease. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I'm sure we'll see a lot more like it. Um, What else do we think we will see as battlegrounds uh, for upcoming case law during the rest of this year? And, you know, who knows how long we're going to have COVID in our lives, but it's not going to stop these business as usual type cases, is it? No, I mean, I think, you know, going back to the point that we've, we've made about tenants looking for alternative spaces, I mean, I think we're going to be seeing um, tenants who are proactively um, serving Section 26 notices, unopposed lease renewals or possibly opposed lease renewals if landlords are keen to keep tenants there and can find a reason to do so. I think we're going to see an increase in um, break clause, you know, um, tenants looking to um, exercise their options to determine the leases. Um, and um, additional dilapidations claims. Yeah, I think that's definitely right. I mean, I've already had more Section 26 requests in the last few weeks, actually, uh, than I've probably seen in my whole career. Um, So it's interesting. I think tenants are looking to renegotiate. It's a positive sign in a way. You know, it is a desire to stay in their premises, but it is also obviously looking to renegotiate the terms on which they do so. Uh, so I think it will be interesting to see how those discussions pan out. I mean, particularly thinking obviously turnover rents, you know, I don't see those disappearing out of landlords' lives for a while in those types of premises. I definitely will think we'll see, um, as Natalie says, an increase in dilapidations claims. I mean, when the market is a little bit um, volatile um, and obviously when, you know, there might be difficulties in reletting some properties, um, you know, that's when there tends to be quite significant disputes around the state of repair of the property. Um, so, you know, that's certainly going to be an area I think we're going to see an increase in. Well, definitely. I mean, that's the problem for landlords, isn't it? They're either going to have tenants serving Section 26 is saying we want to renegotiate the terms to our considerable benefit if you want us to stay or tenants disappearing, whether that's through insolvencies or Section 27 notices or, you know, break options or whatever it might be. And and then, as you say, and then there's the dilapidations claim and all of that to sort out um so yeah we certainly saw that in the last recession you know dilapidations increase significantly um when it's difficult to relet it's you know it's an, let's face it it's an area of income for landlords you know it's an area to get some cash flow um uh, so yes let's watch this space um i'm sure we've got some interesting decisions ahead um But thank you very much for running through those interesting decisions uh, so far. Uh, I'm sure our listeners will now feel fully briefed as they head off onto their holidays. Whether you are staycationing or otherwise, uh, we wish you all a really good summer break. Thank you. This is a Charles Russell Speechlease podcast.